White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 524. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started, all engines are started, we have ignition, 2, 1, 0, we have a liftoff, we have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area, it's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center, the Saturn V is moving off the path, it is now clear the top. Hello and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment, along with all of our great supporters. You know them, you love them, we can't live without them via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Flexico, and I am joined for this episode by J.J. Walsh. J.J. Walsh is the author of The Chowderhead Crusades, a book I have just recently finished listening to on Audible as performed by the awesome Patton Oswald. Man, how can, you can't get much better than that. That's awesome stuff. And it is this really, really cool sort of trivia slash sci-fi slash superhero comics meta story, kind of in the vein of Ready Player One, but completely its own thing. And we're going to talk about that. So welcome aboard the show, JJ. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you. Great to be here. So you are the author of The Chowderhead Crusades which is called by the Portland Book Review on your cover there, the Comic Book Nerds Ready Player One. Now, I, I listened to the audio read by the awesome Patton Oswald, and I have the paperback here, too, because I wanted to go through it and kind of just check on some things that I wasn't sure I'd heard right or that, you know, you kind of, when you're listening to something, it goes quickly. And I want to go back and kind of linger on some passages and things. So I, I have so many questions about this, and I, I don't even know where to begin, but I, I think the first I want to start with you writing it. So... Was this your first published novel? It was. It was. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think I'll be letting the cat out of the bag if, you know, if I remind folks that Ready Player One was certainly an inspiration. Um, and after reading that, I, I sat down and said, you know, somebody really ought to do something similar to this using, using comic books. And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm somebody. So, <laughs> and also I write for a living. It seems like maybe I should do it. <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. I, I got to be honest with you. And I, I don't want to dwell on Ready Player One because I don't think it's fair to you to make this as much about some other book as it is about yours. I want to talk about your book. But, but while we're talking about it up front, I just want to say I totally agree. For years, I've thought that there were other things that could be done in that vein. And the things that I've seen that were remotely similar weren't really remotely similar. You know? <laughs> they, 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 they didn't quite get it. And this is the first I book. I agree. Yeah. Well, if you look on Amazon and you look at the the, the uh, similar titles, and then they're not actually similar. So, no. You know, there, there's a real market there. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the first one that I thought really kind of gets what that was all about. You know, the young protagonists who are dealing with real world issues, but there's also another sort of level of story woven into it that also invites the reader to have to figure stuff out at the same time the characters are. I mean, that's that is engaging on many, many levels, and that's very appealing, and that's one of the reasons that it's the first one I really picked up and got excited about. Now, we can throw Ready Player One out the window because, again, we want to talk about your book, which I think is sufficiently a different animal that we don't have to compare it, except as a starting point here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for me, the, there was the nostalgia that I got from Ready Player One as a guy, you know, I was the target as a guy growing up in the, the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a TRS-80. I didn't know other people had 
you know, the crappy Radio Shack computer. <laughs> so the nostalgia of those constant references to the 80s, I thought, you know, my life with comic books, there's so many moments that are like with music kind of burned into my brain with comics. And I think being able to experience that nostalgia while, you know, experience a really original fun story that was what 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 drew me to it and and drove mm. me to to write it and stick with it for for quite a while. So yeah, I want to talk about that. So how what was your process for writing? We're going to let me let me say up front, we're not going to spoil too much of it. Or if we do, we'll save it for the end and we'll give a spoiler warning. But um <laughs> what was sort of your process originally for coming up with this and then how did it sort of evolve over time? Well, I wrote uh I mean, I had kind of three goals. There was that idea of nostalgia and kind of reconnecting with, oh, I remember when I was reading that issue of Thor or whatever it was, which would bring you back to that, that moment. Whether or not it was a good time in your life or not, there's that, there's that bright spot of reading that issue or issues. And so I wanted to, to have that as kind of a note. The second thing was uh, to really make a statement about the positive social impact of comics. Um, the book's not a scholarly work by any stretch, but it celebrates the art form and the artist's and the social commentary that drives them. So I really wanted to bring that to the foreground because there are still people in the world that thinks that comics and cartoons are the same thing. They're for kids. And, and that's really ridiculous when you, when you dig into the history. And then thirdly, I wanted to write a, you know, a story or I wanted to wrap it all up in a kind of action movie-esque bundle of sci-fi-esque kickery um, that, would, that would have wide appeal regardless of whether or not you were a comic book fan. So those are the three goals. And the process you know, started with an outline, which... As a writer, you may or may not agree that outlines are nice. You know, they're, they're a nice idea, but um, the story tends to develop on its own. And for me, that's driven much more by the character arcs than, you know, what the characters are doing or where they're going. It's what is the emotional journey they need to go on. And then you start filling in those blanks in the outline as well as you can. But for me, it, it happens when you're writing and that outline evolves drastically during the process. Yes. No, 100%. I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm... In the, in the world of plotter versus pantser, I'm a strong believer that you start with the good plot, the good outline, and then you let it grow like it wants to grow within reason. I've, the, the comparison I always make is if, like, if I'm driving from New York to Los Angeles, I, I want to have a general idea of which direction to go and which highways I should probably be on, but I don't want to keep myself from going out and looking at the Grand Canyon if I get a chance, you know, or going over there and looking at this. <laughs> so it's a kind of a combination, a I think. Yeah, you, you need a com- you need a combination of both. You know, you need the spot. You need to be able to be spont- spontaneous, but still kind of know where you're going, right? Absolutely. So, what was sort of your mechanical process for writing this? How long did it take? Did you do it in the evenings, in the mornings, work all day on it on the weekends? How long did it take you, and how did you go about it? Yeah, I just did it overnight. It was <laughs> no. I mean, you can tell when you're reading it. Just, I mean. It's the first novel, you know, I've written screenplays and some other stuff, but this was really my first serious undertaking. So that by itself is, is, is challenging. Um, but then throw on that the thousands of issues of research. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had to re- reread or, or speed read so many issues to sound like more of an expert than I ever could be or really anyone ever could be. Because as I went and interviewed people at comic book stores, I, I realized... Nobody will call themselves an expert because they all don't want to be embarrassed when you point out, you know, so-and-so's origin isn't what they said it was. Um, So that was, I'd say, the biggest challenge is just really building up the the research chops I needed to be a convincing kind of guide through this world. And then, you know, the writing was challenging, I think, as it is for any writer. 
I wrote every morning. I run a business, so I, I'm lucky enough to be able to take a couple hours in the morning and, and write. And mechanically, it, it was an easy enough process of, of get up, do it, go to work, come back the next morning and, and do some more. Uh, emotionally, again, as a writer, you may be able to relate. Half the time you're thinking, what am I doing? This is a waste of time. This is terrible. And the other half of the time you're thinking, I'm, I'm a genius and wait till everybody <laughs> discovers it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that's not just me that, that thinks that, <laughs> has thought that over the years for sure. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, horrible. I, I, there's an actor that um, I can't remember the name of the actor, but one of his quotes was, when it comes to you know a creative career, if there's anything else you can see yourself doing, do that. <laughs> and if there isn't, then you have to commit fully and just yeah. accept that you're going to be kind of miserable a lot of the time. <laughs> and it's I, I, for me, I, I hate writing, but I hate not writing more. So those are your choices. Yeah, no, absolutely. A hundred percent. So I, I think we need to, for the folks that are listening now, they've gotten a sense of, of, um, of you and, and how you did it and everything. And we've said, we've, we've kind of compared it to Ready Player One, but do you want to like take a crack at, at telling people kind of like the back of the, bl- back of the book blurb or Amazon listing blurb that haven't ever heard of this before that to get them interested in like, what is it about exactly? What's going on, and why would they enjoy it? I, I can I can certainly take a crack at it. You know, it's a it's a sci-fi novel set in a dystopian future. It, it kicks off in in a scene at, at Comic Con, and and a, a whimsical character appears named Cataclysm Catholicon and informs the world uh, through a um, omni-channel broadcast that humanity is is really headed for uh, for an ugly end, and our only hope is through the study of superhero comic books and the lessons that are offered in those comic books. And then we kind of skip ahead to a kid on a basically a slave ship going back and forth from Mars mining this ore, who is the son of a couple of followers of Cataclysm. And, you know, Cataclysm offered everyone the opportunity to solve his various puzzles. And the prize would be a technology of unimaginably advanced power that would be able to change the world. So we've got this character that 20 years into this competition, nobody has, has solved the puzzles. Nobody has gone on the journey that the puzzles would send them on because they're just too, too difficult. And our hero is, is committed to, to solving the puzzle and it launches him into an intergalactic journey with a lot of twists and turns and, and a lot of uh, near-death experiences. And that, that is kind of the backbone of the story without, without ruining any of the specifics for you. Right. Yeah. At this point, we don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but we can dig a little bit more into the, like, the actual specifics out toward the end. So, so the thing that immediately jumped out at me was, okay, it's, it's again, you know, the Ready Player One. It's kind of a Ready Player One style of book. But then I saw that it was like superhero comics reference. And I was thinking one of my complaints about that other book was that it was so focused on games. I mean, it had a little bit of everything, obviously, but it was focused on games, which is like my least inter- the least interesting thing to me. And so I was super excited, you'll pardon the expression, when I, when I discovered you know, your book, when I heard about your book, because it's focused on one of my favorite things like that, which is comic book superheroes. You know, I, I, in fact, we can talk about our history with those but in just a second. But, um, but yeah, so I thought this has a chance to either massively disappoint me <laughs> or really, really excite me because it <laughs> sounds like it's right up my alley, right? It's like, this sounds like, it sounds like everything I wanted that other book to be about, but just that, you know, it's like if you really, really like right. IndyCar, 
this cuts out the NASCAR, the Formula One, the road, and just, just gives you IndyCar, you know. So I was very excited about it being that specific. So what, what is your history with comic books and superheroes? How was that what you ended up using as sort of the, the, the main ingredient of this cake that you baked here? I think early on, uh, it was my dad, and he, you know, he'd tell me stories about his childhood when he was, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine. You know, he'd get his allowance, which was 25 cents. Mm-hmm. And he'd go to the store and he'd buy a candy bar for five cents <laughs> and two comics for 10 cents each. Oh, and man. I don't know how many times he told me that story. I, he was trying to teach me the value of money. I don't know. And, <laughs> and by the way, he must have grown up in the 18th century because I, I don't know when things cost that amount. But um, he didn't really stick with comics as he grew up, but he thought they were interesting, you know, for kids. So he'd buy me one here and there. And eventually that kind of evolved into a Sunday trip to the comic book store. And he kind of rediscovered it a little bit. So it was really powerful um, bonding thing for, for me and my dad. But at the time, you know, I thought, oh, they're, they're, they're stories, you know, they're, they're, they're great stories, but they're still just stories. And it wasn't until I was a little older and, and kept my interest in comics because of that powerful nostalgic connection that I started to understand, you know, you read The Dark Knight Returns and you notice that, you know, Ronald Reagan is in there. He was the president at the time. <laughs> you know, this, this seems like a somebody's trying to say something here and you dig into it and you realize that from day one, comic books have been social commentary. You look back at, at Captain America number one, and it's just a couple of Jewish kids disgusted with the fact that the United States has not gotten into World War II. And so they've created a superhero to punch Hitler in the face. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I think we in America like to imagine that we didn't need to be told that Nazis were bad. But at the time, there were Nazi sympathizers here in the U.S. And in fact, as I tell in the book, uh, they show up. They showed up at uh, outside the Timely Publications building and threatened to kill Jack Kirby, who uh, famously responded when he got the call upstairs to say there were some guys downstairs that wanted to beat him up. His famous response was, I'll be right down. And uh, by the time he got there, they'd, they'd fled. But just, you know, he is, he is everything comic books are about for me. I mean, just an amazing okay. artist and, and storyteller, but also... You know, he lived it. He didn't, he wasn't all talk. He went and actually fought the Nazis after creating Captain America. And then he came back and really revolutionized the industry. So for me, there's that kind of childhood nostalgia thing for comics. And then there's that, that later thing that, wow, what a powerful way for artists to make a statement about what they believe in as right and wrong. And, you know, they're still doing it today. The LGBTQ rights movement is, whether it's literally mentioned um, or whether it's metaphorically talked about, you know, almost every comic book is, is basically is making an argument for how we ought to be changing the way we think about the world. And I think that's, that's an amazing way to do it because, you know, people can get up on their soapboxes and preach, but you, you put it in the form of a comic book and, and you, you're able to get, I think, under the radar for a lot of people and start changing the way they're thinking the way the X-Men did for, I think, a lot of gay kids who felt mm-hmm. like in the 80s, they were different and it was hard being different. And then they picked up these comics and they were basically being told that being different is a superpower and you should embrace it and, and forgive those who can't embrace it. And it's just, it's just, there's so many wonderful messages. I could go on and on, but I won't. No, that's, that's all fantastic. No, I agree with you completely all the way down the line. That's, I mean, there's some, yeah, I mean, I, let, let me dig into a little bit of that. Cause yeah, you just said a lot of really good things. Uh, 
I love the Jack Kirby thing. I love that you know you reference it in the book. It, it cracked me up at the time, and you mentioned it again now. It, it cracks me up again. I love it because basically Jack Kirby was Ben Grimm. It was the same, you know. Ben Grimm was if Jack Kirby had rocks, <laughs> had rocks on him. And so you can totally see him getting ready to come down and whoop ass on some Nazis. That would have just been, I wish they hadn't run away because he'd have beat their butts. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I was just thinking, talking about you first picking them up. I have told the story on my show before that, you know, it was 1977, I believe. And um, I had seen the Marvel Comics lunchbox here and there at my school as a third grader, fourth grader, probably as a third grader. And somebody, I, I had like Richie Rich comics, you know, Uncle Scrooge, whatever. But then somebody gave me Avengers 162, The Bride of Ultron, Jim Shooter and George Perez. And it was all over. That comic book hit me about the same way that Star Wars did a few months later. And so discovering the Avengers and Star Wars within about three months of each other in 1977 pretty much set my life down the course it would go. And so it, it, they really do have a profound <laughs> impact on, you know, on what we're interested in and what we believe and, and just the power of story and, and all of that. And I mean, so yeah, I, my granddad, when I was, when I was buying superhero comics at that point, after, after Avengers 162, they were 30 cents at that time. And I would always, when we'd go to the grocery store, I'd go over to the spinner rack and look at the comics, and I'd find one I really wanted. I'd go ask my granddad, can I have 32 cents? And he'd give me a quarter. He'd get his little change purse out, you know, and give me a quarter and a nickel and two pennies exact change out of that thing, and I'd go buy something. And uh, and so that was, you know, oh, really a spinner sp- rack. Yeah. So that was a special thing. I was in thing. 7-Eleven the other day. Mm-hmm. It's the same 7-Eleven that was near my house when I grew up. I went in there. And I walked over to the corner where the spinner rack was, and there's still a spinner rack, but it's got sunglasses on it. Oh, oh. I remember going in and just like when Brad was a kid, and I'd buy a carton of chocolate milk, and I'd get a couple of comics from the spinner rack. And you go there, and they don't necessarily have the comic that you want, so you end up just getting the closest thing to something you want, and you end up reading that, and all of a sudden you discover a new title that you're into. And it's so sad to me that the distribution of comics became you know, so, so narrow to comic book stores because the spinner mm-hmm. racks, I had very fond memories of them. Yeah, you know, and it's true. The, the way that I discovered a lot of things I hadn't read before, too, was that I remember the department store. We had like the, the early version of a Walmart. It wasn't even a Kmart. It was something else in my little town in Alabama. And they would have these plastic bags with three comics in them. And you'd pick out the one you wanted, obviously, based on what was on the outsides. There might be like an Iron Man <laughs> on one side and a Thor on the other, but you don't know what's in the middle. And you get home and open that bag up. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> well, sometimes it was not anything you're interested in, but sometimes it would be, you'd be like, oh, Ghost Rider, what is that all about? You know, or oh, it's the X-Men, what is that? So, or, or Marvel Triple Action, you know, or Team Up. A lot of time it'd be like a Spider-Man book or a Team Up or something or two in one. So that was how I discovered a lot of, a lot of uh, comics that I wouldn't have necessarily bought off the, ra- off the spinner rack. Did you ever get any of those little bag sets? You know, we did. I, I never ran across those. I, you know, I had the comic book store that I go to on, on Sunday, and there's a wonderful woman named Kathy who I still keep in touch with. She actually read the book and gave me some feedback. Cool. Um, so it's that was really amazing, full circle. The kind of the person that ushered me into comic books, um, hmm. kind of read the book later, and uh, she would recommend things to me. She would, oh, you, yeah, you definitely should check this out, and I'd be hesitant and. She'd force them on me, and then I'd get into them. So that's how I ended up interested in a thousand different titles from uh, from the the, the drug pusher like uh, comic book store uh, matron. 
<laughs> I love it. So, all right, you got to tell me, what was your <laughs> first superhero comic? My first superhero comic that I remember, mm-hmm. um, it, it was The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, wow. and, and it, you know, that probably wasn't the first one I read, but the power of that comic, you know, I, I had never seen anything like that. Just the notion that, that Batman ages. <laughs> I mean, that alone is, is a strange thing. Um, but what Frank Miller did with that storyline and then also Superman ages and then Batman is beating Superman up. I mean, it just blew my mind. Now I go back and I look at it and I just look at the depth of commentary in it. And it, you know, it, it holds, holds water. Even to this day, it's amazing what he was saying and what he was doing with that comic. Never, never mind the art, which is just, I mean, it was revolutionary at the time. Um, and then after that, I mean, you know, Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson working on Spider-Man, you know, those covers are burned into my, into my brain. Sure. Um, and, and there's so many others. So what would be your favorite superhero character? You know, my son asks me that often and I refuse to give him an answer, but I'll give you an answer. <laughs> okay. And I, I think uh, I want to give him room to grow. I don't, I don't want to steer him. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I'd say Ghost Rider. I, I, I just love Ghost Rider, the, the whole ethos of it. Wow. And specifically, I mean, it comes down to the penance stare. Because for me, the powers that superheroes have and how unique they are is really what does it for me. I mean, the fact that Superman can fly and he has heat vision. And at the time, that was amazing. But since then, everybody's ripped Superman off a million times. So the, the coming up with a really unique superpower is, is what does it for me. And, and I, I did it in the book. I came up with one that I hadn't seen anywhere mm-hmm. and it had an ironic weakness, which I think is a really important thing. You know, Superman has kryptonite and that's what makes him interesting. If he didn't have kryptonite, then he's boring. But for me, you know, Ghost Rider's penance stare, the idea that he can gaze into an evildoer's eyes and make them experience in just the, the, the span of a moment, all of the wrong they've done to others hmm. is such a fascinating philosophical kind of journey, just imagining the pain that they're feeling and the, the karma of it, that really is a hook. And never mind the fact that he's cool and is, he's got a flaming skull for a head. I mean, <laughs> can't go wrong with flaming skull, as you know. I um, Yes, yes, exactly. I had to combine a skull and a, and a flaming skull. I, You know, that's interesting. I've never heard anybody say that. That must be a power. I, that does sound like a really cool power, but it's. I think that must be something he acquired after I used to read him because I read Ghost Rider back in the late 70s and he basically just shot you with hellfire out of his hand and rode his motorcycle around. And he well, didn't hellfire's really... good. <laughs> but what you're, what you're saying, though, is, is fascinating. And for me... It's what I love about comics, and it what's t- it's what ties them to the epic tales, to the Iliad and 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 the Odyssey, and, and all of the other mythology, is that never mind Ghost Rider. Look at Superman. As I said, he's got heat vision; he can fly. And nope, look back at the first issue. He was just a strong guy that could run fast and and maybe jump high. Um, he wasn't bulletproof, but the subsequent writers he might have been bulletproof actually, but. Uh, his flight and his heat vision and a lot of his powers were acquired as people retold the story. And mm-hmm. they were fine with that. They were fine with readers saying, wait a minute, he, he can't do that. Yes, he can. He can now because I'm telling story my way. And the fact that artists were able to not only draw the character literally in their own way, but create them, recreate their origins. Um, the original Superman, the baby touches down, he goes to an orphanage for a period of time. Then he's eventually adopted by Ma and Pa Kent. But you know, as you've seen it retold thousands of times, no, nope, he lands in their field and they take him in. It's it's more streamlined and it's it's better. So we're going to go with that. 
So the way the characters change over time with retelling in order to reflect kind of the needs of the artists and the readers of that time, I think is fascinating. The ability to evolve these characters kind of to kind of solve uh, the problems and the needs uh, that people have now versus 30 or 40 years ago is one of the really powerful things about comic books and what makes them timeless because they refuse to be tied down. And I love the fact that Marvel has taken that same philosophy to the movies. They've done yeah. three Hulks now and they're, they're not, you know, they're kind of playing fast and loose with, with who's playing him and what the origin story is because first movie, people didn't really like that. Cool. We'll try again. And we're going to give ourselves full license to, to recast it, to have a different director tell it a different way. And we're going to keep doing it until it works. And I love the freedom that comic book artists um, and the industry as a whole have to do that. Whereas a lot of other artistic pursuits, it's kind of like once it's done, it's done. And, you know, people like it or not. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I'm just, I, as you say that, I just imagine what if like, I started to say, what if Tolkien's, you know, Middle Earth was done that way? How many different versions we'd have of all the various things? And I thought, well, we probably will with the Amazon TV show coming. But up until now, <laughs> you know, it would, it would be interesting to see other properties done the way comics can do them. Because it is really, like you say, it's really an ever-changing, ever-evolving medium. That's that's very interesting. That's and, really good. and I love the, the clans that emerge from that. And, <laughs> you know, we get pissed off when they change somebody's outfit. Um, yep. because that's not the Captain America I grew up with, but it's the Captain America that people need now, you know? And, and I, I think that, that that's, that's a really wonderful uh, fact about comics, even if it pisses me off that um, Thor's a woman. What? Well, <laughs> I, you know what? It's time. So, yeah, Thor's a woman. <laughs> I, I don't even try to keep up with that kind of thing anymore. I, I'm totally fine with folks nowadays doing whatever they want with it and meeting, like you say, meeting the needs of the current audience. That's great. And, I, and I've got the stories I love. You know, my iPad has got digital copies of basically anything I'm ever going to want to read from, from 30 years ago. And, I'm, I'm, and I read new stuff all the time. And I'm good. So you, <laughs> you, you, you reference all kinds of uh, Marvel, DC, and other companies' characters. And I'm, I'm curious, well, my first question about that is, how did you kind of decide on the questions that you use as like your, because we, we need to state the the puzzle that is presented to the world. Oh gosh, we need to talk about the title, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, but before we talk about the title, the puzzle that's presented to the world is in the form of a crossword puzzle, which I thought was a really innovative way to go, right? It's doing something different than has been done before. But it's still, it's, it really comes down to basically kind of clever trivia questions. So how did you decide which characters, which questions to ask? And did you try to mix them up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to, you know, pay tribute to, to everybody who was, was worthy, obviously. You know, if you, if you talk all about Marvel and DC and you, you leave out, there's so many other publishers that, mm -hmm. that you really need to talk about if you're going to give a full treatment to superhero comics. Never mind manga and, right. and you know, the rest of the world, which I had to omit for, for a reason that's actually ultimately stated in the book, but the reason is ultimately because I, I haven't really dived into that stuff. But I had to have the stuff be sufficiently obscure so that you could believe the puzzle was not solved, you know, for 15 or 20 years. And I'd say from a plotting standpoint, 
you know, I have Wikipedia to work with. And if you have Wikipedia to work with, then you're probably going to be able to solve the puzzle. So I had to, you know, work through that in the plot and basically have all of those tools removed from the landscape so that people basically had no choice but to read comics to solve the conundrum. And in that light, it is a very hard puzzle to solve. And it really would take you a couple of decades, possibly, especially if people weren't working together, which of course they weren't because they didn't want to give away any answers because then somebody else might solve the puzzle and, and get the unimaginably advanced technology. <laughs> so uh, that was the main problem is kind of setting up, no matter how obscure the questions were, how do I create a believable landscape where people couldn't find the answers on the stupid internet? But from there, it was just, as I said, hundreds of comics read and, and, or, or reread um, and coming up with kind of clever wordplay to, mm. to mask the answer. Um, or mislead the reader into thinking it was one thing when it was really another thing. That was the, the goal. And, and uh, I got there, I think, most of the time. A few of them I'm not happy with, but we won't talk about those. <laughs> well, and I thought that was one of the clever things about doing it as a crossword was, one, it was a different format than really I've seen before. I thought that was a good idea to make it different. But also, you know, crossword puzzle clues are notorious for the wordplay. And so that, like you said, that gives you an extra layer of obscurity. First, you're talking about questions that are hard enough, and then you're talking about hard questions that are further obscured by the way the question is asked. So, yeah. like, I write taglines for a living a lot of the time. So I was that was something that I I, I wanted to do because I wanted to use that. Otherwise, what do I use that skill for? I honed it for for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and it works. It works really well. I thought. I'm going to just give one example, and it's in your appendix. It's very brief because you, in the appendix you list a few, and one I won't say the answer. But it says his controllers, his creators couldn't control him, and I, you know, that's just five words, but yet all you need really it's to not figure a lot it. To go out. On. Yeah, but all you need is there. It's just, yeah. it's it's one of those clues that is both a really good trivia question, and then it's a really well-constructed crossword clue. And when you combine the two, it's, it's really cool. So, yeah. Um, and I, I, one of the ones I'm very I'm glad you called that one out. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was, <laughs> I, it's because it's one that I might've gotten just because the character it refers to is a character I particularly like being in sort of a fan of that corner of that universe. But, Oh, that's what I was going to ask you is, um, and we got to talk about the title. Are you more of a Marvel guy or a DC guy or, 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 or some other third party? <laughs> you know, I think it depends on the, on the era of my existence. Okay. Uh, I think I'm, I'm more knowledgeable about Marvel, um, but there's some, you know, I spent a long time in the, in the Batman universe in my earlier years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, oh. I mean, it's a, it is important to talk about the title. I, I think it, it is a weird title and it, without explanation, uh, it's even weirder. But the, the idea was that that as people became followers of, of Cataclysm, Catholicon, and the teachings of what he calls, the, what they call the scriptures, detractors started to call them names. They referred to themselves as superhead or superhero heads or soup heads for short. And so the detractors started calling them chowder heads because soup, head, soup heads sounds like, you know, soup. And uh, they adopted it as persecuted groups often do as, uh, you know, with pride and refer to themselves as Chowderheads. So that's how we got to Chowderheads, which is a little bit of a long way around, but it makes for uh, an interesting question that you want to solve as you're reading the book. And, you know, as, as, as 
the chatterheads are working on on all of these uh, solutions, they become increasingly uh, kind of divided from one another because they they don't want to give them away, as I said, uh, to each other. But the group begins to dwindle over the over the decades, and being a chatterhead becomes a rarer and rarer thing. So our our hero is is a, a purebred uh, kind of last of its kind character. Yeah, that see that was the thing I was curious about. Is I have to admit I was. Your, the title struck me kind of 50% one way and 50% the other. My first thought was, I have no idea what that means, and I'm not really sure how it relates to a near-future puzzle-related you know, book like I'm expecting this to be. But on the other hand, it does certainly make me curious, and I did want to dig around some and find out what in the world does that title mean, and how is how does that translate into being the book I think this is supposed to be? So... It was interesting. I I'm I'm I I don't know that I love it to be honest, but it certainly is intriguing and and did pull me in. And I think also your cover is very uh, appealing because it definitely gets across a combination of sort of superhero comics, but also like a fun, not taking itself too seriously, but still having a serious you know message in it. Kind of a of a romp with the rocket ship and the explosion and the and the superhero masks and stuff. I mean. I think it, it's very effective at getting across what this what's going on here. I'm really glad, and, I, and I, I I have to agree with you that the title, you know, being an advertiser my whole life, I, I realize there's a risk with the title because it doesn't tell you what the book's about. So I knew we had to do that with design. So the, the cover mm-hmm. does some of the heavy lifting there, uh, but at the same time, in advertising, we know that if you're if you're doing it right, somebody's going to hate it, um, <laughs> and if nobody hates it then nobody's going to remember it because only, only something that is hated can be loved by somebody else. So you really, somebody's going to love the title. Somebody's going to hate the title, but everybody's going to remember it yeah. as opposed to, you know, it's a book. People are, you know, are, are going to easily forget a lot of titles. So I, I wanted to make sure that, that I, that I put a stake in the ground as I'm always telling my clients, but I realized that some folks are going to be like, I don't get it. And also Chatterhead's kind of negative. Why do I want to hear a story about some dummies going on a crusade? Uh, but <laughs> I went all in. Yeah, no, I think it's very effective. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. And I, that, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that because I was just curious how you, how you came up with it, and then how you decided to go with it. Because, yeah, and it's and it's and it certainly is entertaining. I want to talk a little bit more about the actual stuff. Now we might want to get in a little spoiler space here in our last little bit. And I have to I have to point out for one thing. You talk about the the prize, and this is called the what? Say the three words: the unimaginably. The unimaginably advanced technology, UAT for short. Okay, so you keep abbreviating it UAT, which drove me nuts because as an Auburn guy, we call Alabama UAT for University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. So every time I saw that, I'm like, oh, it's the enemy. No, wait, that's not the enemy. <laughs> so, but that's very unique to me, okay? That's not not everybody's going to encounter that. I'm going to lose a small portion of my audience there. <laughs> very tiny, very tiny. So I one thing I really like that you did is that in addition to using Marvel, DC, and, and a number of other companies' characters, I, I think you kind of had to do two things that, that, that worked together here. You had to think that you wanted to have some characters you could have a little more agency and control over, and you had to kind of assume that in the years between now and several decades later when this book takes place, new characters are going to come along, right? I mean, it's just natural. 
And so you you kind of made that mm-hmm. work for you. You created some new characters yourself that we are to believe just came along in the years since you know 2021. And you were able to kind of manipulate them. So was that the plan all along? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I was trying to solve. I definitely needed to to have characters that that I could really control in a way that wasn't going to tread on uh, fair use. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, a real ulcer maker is is trying to walk that line, which um, I'm confident I have. But you certainly couldn't put Superman in your story and have him talking to your characters without getting shut down. But yes, of course, because there is a, another another 20 years, we're going to need other other uh, references, and, and and I need to make references to those to try to fill in those gaps. And even on top of that, uh, I, I needed to. A lot of my research was done to fill in gaps in my own experience because you know my my uh, center of my knowledge about comic books is you know kind of 80s and early 90s and and kind of mid 2000s there are periods where i kind of checked out mm-hmm. um so i had to do a lot of research even to fill in the gaps for years that have occurred never mind the years that have yet to occur right yeah i would have been in the same boat there there were a number of years there i basically missed the mid to late 80s so i missed a lot of stuff that people think of as the greatest era ever but i consider like the late 70s to early 80s to be the greatest comics era ever so we all can we can all you know <laughs> argue about that but um so yeah so that was the thing i was going to ask you about what you just touched on is how how did you how free did you feel to use existing characters and and locations and stuff like again we're in kind of the spoiler space now so go read the book go get it on Audible listen to Pat Oswald read it go get the paperback get it on Kindle you will enjoy it I promise if you like this show you'll enjoy it and then come back so how did you feel about how could you you know how much could you get away with using did you have a sense for that did you talk to a lawyer or did you just try to steer clear or what a lot of conversation with lawyers. I, I mean, a lot of the writing, it, it's just like Ernest Klein said when, when he'd written Ready Player One, he, he was like, this could never be a movie because right. the IP challenges are just too great. Meanwhile, it was, <laughs> you know, bought up by Spielberg before it even hit the shelves. <laughs> yes. um, but he didn't even really ask those questions about writing the book. So I, I felt, and I'd read a lot of interviews with him and I felt pretty confident that you know, in a in a novelized environment, you can you can do a lot that you could not do in a movie. But as I as time passed, and I started thinking about the fact that uh, I was really focused, so focused on these specific publishers that you know I'm borrowing their audience for sure. And what am I allowed to do and not allowed to do according to fair use? So I had a lot of conversations with with lawyers, and and some of those conversations changed the book. I was very pleased for the better. I went back really when it was done and said, okay, there's a few things in here that I think I could tweak that would really make it more ownable and, and be more transformative as the lawyers say, um, but also really make for a more interesting uh, story and, and some more interesting character development. And, and so by the time I was done with it, I felt like often as a writer, you find that your limitations end up being the things that, that make what you're working on better. So uh, I, I tread lightly, um, but, but also tried to make sure that I was giving credit where credit was due because you can't write a, in my opinion, you can't write a book about a history of comics and not talk about the real titles. And I know it has been done. Cavalier and Clay, I think, it, it did a fantastic job of fictionalizing it all, but 
I really wanted to, to connect with, with the real history. Um, and you can't do that, obviously, without talking about the real titles. And that's and that's a big part of the appeal too. Is people go, oh, there's that. Oh, there's that. You know, I mean, you know, like Ready Player One gets a lot of criticism for being like a basically a, a checklist. It's not, but people will the people that want to be negative will say it's a checklist of things. But I mean, even if it were, and again, it's not. But even if it were, there is the appeal of going, oh yeah, there's that thing I loved. Oh, I remember that. That was awesome. You know, there's an enjoyment level to that. So if you, if the whole thing was fictionalized, then you know, like. Like you know, my my Sentinels superheroes novels, everything in those books is is my own creation. But even then, I kind of wanted to have them be echoes of stuff that would give you a flavor and a sense of you know existing characters out there, because it's it's a genre, it's it's a it's a it's a world, it's a universe, it's a type of storytelling that 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 we're we're celebrating and honoring. And so you need to be have some you need there needs to be a recognition level to some degree or another on it, I think. So and that's what I really enjoyed about this. Absolutely. And and I want to ask you along those lines, so you have the Fate Force. And I kept the first few times you mentioned the Fate Force, you may have said that they came along later or something, and I might have missed it. I kept thinking, man, how did I miss that comic? <laughs> How did I never see that? You know, so so that was effective because the way that you described them at the beginning, it sounded just like any other thing that Marvel or DC would have published at some you know at some point in the past. And I'm like, man, how did I miss those comics? I kind of got to check that out. So so there's a there's a gold star for you right there. I was hoping people would have that reaction. I didn't know, but I I have also considered you know going and putting up fake Wikipedia pages and whatnot, and I looked into it, but. Um, that's, that's frowned upon by Wikipedia. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I wanted people to, to think it, it was real and, and not think much of it and just kind of move along, do exactly what you did. Oh, you know, I should check that out. And then, and everyone I've talked to that has read the book has gone through exactly that journey. I don't want people to go and research it and, and start, you know, suspecting various twists and turns. Um, so that I, I, I didn't, I wanted to give as much information as I needed to and not a bit more about uh, the things I was, I was actually making up. All right. Very cool. So um, let me see. I got, I've got a little thing we're going to do at the very end here before we wrap up. But I guess my last question really is, and actually there's several other things that we could still talk about. Obviously we could talk all night, but I'm, I'm curious did it come out the does it did it come out the way you wanted it to? Did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed them? I mean, you, when you look at it sitting there now, what do you kind of feel about it? I think there's a typo on page eighty-eight, <laughs> um, so I want to jump off the of <laughs> building. But other than that, <laughs> no, I mean that is it's. I'll say this is artistic endeavors. It's never done. I think somebody has asked, oh, you know, how did it feel to be finished with it? And I. I'll tell you when I when I know because uh, my editor told me a story about an artist that, that was caught sneaking into the Louvre after hours making touch changes to a painting that that had been hung that day because you can't you're never done there's always right. something oh you know I wish I had done this or that but I will say after gotten a couple of months distance from it it is it is what I wanted it to be would I make changes to it uh, forever? Of course. And I think that's our responsibility as writers is to always be trying to find the thing that you could fix or, 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 or make better. Um, but it is what I wanted it to be. And um, I've gotten really positive feedback from people, which I'm, I'm so deeply grateful for, um, because you live in a void 
for years writing this stuff. It, it did. It took me four years from, hey, I think I'll write this book to, hey, it's on Amazon. And you really, you, you need somebody to say, good job, or, you know, at least not terrible. <laughs> and, and I've gotten really, really positive feedback. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's selling pretty well. It, it's, it's a challenge to get the uh, visibility out there. I think sure. for anybody publishing books these days, uh, you've got just a lot of competition. And that's where the audiobook has really helped me uh, because it's a much smaller pond. And to have Patton Oswalt reading it is massive. And he, I can't say enough what, a, what an amazing professional he is because, you know, I've directed a lot of radio spots, but this is the first audiobook. And, you know, on top of that, it's a book I wrote. I mean, I was a pain in the ass. I know I was, um, you know, oh, can you, could you emphasize the second half of the word instead of the first half of the word? You know, he is, um, he is a real name and for him to put up with me. I was, I, I, I will be forever grateful for the amazing job he did and the patience he showed me. Yeah. It's really great. I mean, the audio, I'm glad I went ahead and got the audio first and just enjoyed that because he does a great job and it's a great story. Yeah. I, I was going to, I talk about the but writing on it. The print because the footnote here. Yeah, you got it. The print gives you all the footnotes for the Chowderhead slang, and that's the one thing we we couldn't really yeah. uh, I- I explore in the audio because it took too much away from the the story. But right, that's the reason to buy the print one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you got the appendices in the back of the print one too, which are cool. I gotta say, yeah, talking about the writing evolving, I know what you mean. I mean, I I look at my first two or three Sentinels books now, and I wrote basically one a year for nine, ten years, and you know. I feel like my writing is just vastly better on the last three or four or five than it was on the first few. But you know, people read the first one and they ha- they say there's like a you know there's like a lightning in a bottle of that very first thing where you first encounter this. So I don't really want to mess with it. It's like on the one hand, I want to go back and just rewrite the first three completely, feeling like I'm more of a professional now. But on the other hand, I don't want to mess with what's you know with what's good. So you kind of have to just oh, leave it alone at some point. Yeah, you evolve. You evolve. yeah. Evolve as, as a writer, as as any kind of art, you, you evolve, and you want to look back at that old old stuff and say, "Oh, you know, I, you know, I'm maybe more polished now, but I had more raw, yeah. you know, artistic drive ten years ago." And which is better, I don't know, but mm-hmm. um, you know, the hope is that you can you can line it all up for your next project <laughs> and and get the best of all those worlds, and that's, that's why right. you keep working. That's right. What have you got coming up in the future? Have you started thinking about anything else yet? Or are you still totally consumed with getting this thing to the public? No, I'm, I'm about halfway through a second novel. Ah. And I got a, a screenplay that optioned that called uh, Faith Heartacre Meets the Devil. And it's about a, a parking cop that uh, gets recruited to become a, a bounty hunter for Satan. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that'll get some traction and get made. Um, I nice. think it's it's a fun story, uh, and then the next novel I'm hoping to have done in, you know, six six to eight months. I would think this one's going a lot faster because it's a story. I'm just writing a story with with characters that do some stuff, as opposed to also it being an encyclopedic, um, <laughs> you know, one stop shop for all of your comic book knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I can see where that would definitely be a little little less intensive, maybe. So that's cool. All right, our very last thing is I have a few trivia questions for you, okay? Because you say in your description, you say in your About the Author that so far his comic book knowledge has not been called upon to save the world, but he is ready. Well, let's see if you're ready, because you may or may not know, but for the (laughs) last 
let's see, for the last, like, tw- uh, 22 years, I've hosted Marvel DC Jeopardy at DragonCon in Atlanta. Oh, God. All right, listen. <laughs> you have to put this out if I blow it, because it can be very damaging to my brand. <laughs> okay. Excellent. All right. So the, so the pressure is on, then. Very good. So I'm just going to throw some of my favorite questions at you, and let's see if you can uh, come up with them. All right? And some of these are just insidiously evil, and some of them are not. All right, so you ready? Here you go. We'll just kind of run through these real quick. When Henry Pym married Janet Van Dean, Pym was using this identity. And I have hero slash villain. I'm going to... I don't know, but I'm going to say Yellow Jacket. Yes! Ding, 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 ding! All right, very good. (laughs) All right, number two. In December of 1979, a Justice League of America cover featured this DC hero rejecting Superman's invitation to join the league by saying, quote, with that jive bunch of turkeys in the JLA, forget it, unquote. Who said that? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) These are all evil, I know. Uh, Oh, all right. It's Black Lightning. Black Lightning. Yes, yes. Very good. All right, number three. In addition to Henry Pym and Bill Foster, this other longtime Avenger has also used the name Goliath. Oh, I do not know. It was back in the Roy oh, Thomas. Wait a minute, Hawkeye. Yes, Clint Barton Hawkeye. You're th- Goliath for a while. Three for three, man. You're kicking butt. You're kicking butt. All right, here's one that kind of plays across the cross culture of pop culture. Wonder Woman's recent Chris Pine co-star, right? Chris Pine is best known as the second Captain Kirk, but his dad is best known for playing the sergeant on this 80s cop show. Chris Pine's dad played the sergeant on this 80s cop show. Now, the original way I I can see him, I don't know his name. (laughs) Well, you don't have to know his name. what show was it? Was it Chips? It was Chips. And it's, uh, I know. I know. What's his name? I can't remember his name. Oh, his I, name I, is Robert Pine. Robert Pine. There you go. I googled you're, that. You're killing it. You're killing it. Four for four. All right, here we go. Keep going. I got. I got like ten of them. We're good. Oh, this is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites. You had to be really paying attention. In the first Avengers movie. This was the video game Tony Stark caught a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent playing on the bridge of the helicarrier. Oh, is it Defender or is it Galaga? Galaga, yes. I'll accept that. Yes. <laughs> Killing it. That man's playing a video game. <laughs> Nobody, he doesn't think anybody's noticing, but I noticed. <laughs> but I, oh, I love it. I love it. All right, let's see. What was Marvel's first limited series and what was wrong with it? First limited series? Yeah, the very first time they did a limited series, around 1981, 82, something like that. And what was wrong with it? It was three issues long. What was wrong with it? I feel like <laughs> what was wrong, was wrong with it is a clue. <laughs> well, it famously had something wrong with it. Their first limited series? Yep. Man, I would have thought that would be way before 81, 82. No, that's when they and started. And I don't know. I don't want to guess something stupid. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. It? I'll tell you what it was, and then maybe you'll remember or, or you'll know what the problem was. It was the Mighty Marvel Contest of Champions. Oh, no. No, I did not remember that. That was the first one. It was where um, 
you, you may recall or you may know that uh, the Collector was destroyed by Korvac in the Avengers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so his brother, the Grandmaster, famously from the last Thor movie, the Grandmaster and, and um, Death maybe played a chess match. And if the Grandmaster won, he got his brother back. But if Death won, then Grandmaster died too. It was something like that. And they each got uh-huh. a set of heroes, and they had a battle. They counted who won how many battles. And the thing that was wrong with uh-huh. it was, after the third issue came out, they declared one side the winner, but the numbers were wrong. That side hadn't won. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of it went down in infamy as they really blew the ending on that. Yeah. So yeah, they had the. It was kind of like Avengers JLA, except with just Marvel characters fighting each other. You know. So. Well, those- the, those little uh, surprises, they'll get you. And I did a lot of research coming up with, with some, <laughs> some stuff for the book. And I'll tell you, there's a puzzle in there that uses a code from World War One. Yes. If you go back and look at those issues that used it, and you would actually try to solve the puzzle in those issues, it doesn't work. <laughs> but I did. I, I was outraged. <laughs> As well, you should be. I was going to, that was really good. That was one of my favorite parts. I was just like, enraptured listening to that going whoa he really put some thought into that that was cool so that was cool uh, all right it was, it was weeks and it worked <laughs> it was really- i'll tell you it almost felt me but it works <laughs> all right well my bonus as we wrap up is this because uh this this question has special meaning so i'm gonna i'll ask you and see what you think when and because you mentioned captain marvel marvell you mentioned him in the book so you do know about him and everything when and how did he first gain the power of firing photon blasts from his hands? <laughs> That's a super specific question, but I want to see if you have any idea. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's a trick question, but I'm not going to tell you how it's a trick question. But when and how did Marvell gain the power of firing photon blasts? Because you know, in his last few appearances, he could do that. But most of his time he showed up, he just like flew around and punched you. So where did that come from? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the stuff I remember so clearly <laughs> is is really that Death of Marvel yeah. series, and that's the one that stuck with me. But uh, his other series, I'm going to say, you know, he didn't. Uh, he was. I, I don't know. Give me the answer. I need the answer. There is no answer. <laughs> that's the trick he question. Do it. He I've never been, do it. I have been. No, he did it. Oh. But here's the thing. In all the in all the Doug Moench and Pat Broderick issues, and then in the Death of Captain Marvel, he could do it. In his in his earlier books, earlier series, he did it at the end. I've spent 20, 30 years researching this, trying to find the answer, and I finally got all the masterworks on my on my iPad. Right, I got I got every Captain Marvel issue in the Marvel Masterworks editions on my Kindle. I read the whole thing from start to finish looking for that moment, and it never happens. There's like issue 46, he can't do it. They change writers and artists, and in issue 47, he blasts somebody. And I'm like, what? what? Where, where did that come from? Well, so that's what we were talking about. When did Superman gain his heat vision? Yes. Say yes. what? Yes. Hey. Somebody just decides he can do it. And if they did it with Superman, yeah. then they can do it with everybody else. That's it. I, I just wanted to see because I thought maybe you might say, oh, I found that, and it was actually in this Marvel 2-in-1. So <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Well, I appreciate you being a good sport and playing there. You did awesome on that. You did a, like better than I think anybody probably would. Certainly better than the folks at DragonCon usually do. Uh-huh. So. You- <laughs> So you, you gotta say, you gotta cut out those last few. I, I gotta get a hundred percent, otherwise, you know, people are gonna be mad at me. I love it. I love it. All right, tell the folks how to find the book and how to find you, and we will wrap things up. Well, it's on Audible. If you want to hear the the audio, or you can get that through Amazon, uh, where you can get the, uh, the the print and the and the digital version. Also, uh, the audio is also available on iTunes, or you can just come over to my house and, and we'll listen to it together. together. So, you know, awesome. whatever, whatever works for you. Fantastic. And you, you're on Twitter, right? So folks can uh, follow your musings on there. Yes, at Double J Walsh, and that's uh, you spell out double mm-hmm. and uh, J Walsh. And I have lots of stuff to say, mostly about comics, a little about politics, and then, uh, you know, some about my kids who are very destructive. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> Fantastic. (laughs) JJ, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you tonight, and I have a feeling we will talk again. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. I'll I'll, I'll definitely let you know the next thing thing comes out. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks so much for having me. Very good. All right, Rocket's going to get out of here for another episode. We'll see you folks down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.